are entering the Freedom Hut. The special counsel decides to have one last shot at the president before he has a mic drop moment and says that he's going to ride off into the sunset, no longer part of the DOJ. Not so fast, Mueller. We've got to break down what he said, what it really tells us, and how it certainly shows that this was always a get Trump operation. We've got that and a whole much, a whole much, bunch more stuff coming up on the Buck Sexton Show. This is the Buck Sexton Show, where the mission, or mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence. One small thing. Make no mistake. America. Ready. You're a great American again. The Buck Sexton Show begins. Activate. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. Buck Sexton. It is Buck Sexton. Now. The first volume of the report details numerous efforts emanating from Russia to influence the election. This volume includes a discussion of the Trump campaign's response to this activity, as well as our conclusion that there was insufficient evidence to charge a broader conspiracy. Now, I hope and expect this to be the only time that I will speak to you in this manner. I am making that decision myself. No one has told me whether I can or should testify or speak further about this matter. There has been discussion about an appearance before Congress any testimony from this office would not go beyond our report. And the report is my testimony. I would not provide information beyond that which is already public in any appearance before Congress. Welcome to the Buck Saxton Show. Finally, we got another, another Mueller-based news cycle to dive into together. It was only a matter of time. You, you thought we were through with the Mullerisms with the special counsel era, but no. Now, sure enough, today, Bob Mueller, by his own admission, and you heard him there, just said, I decided this is what I was going to do. I was going to stand in front of the American people and talk about the report that has been out now for, it's in its second month. It's been out for quite a while. I've read it. I'm sure many of you have read it. It's well known what's in the report. What exactly does Mueller think he's accomplishing today? Uh, let's work backwards on this, because first, that the special counsel just declares, oh, well, uh, I wouldn't tell you anything anyway, and so there's essentially no need to subpoena me, tells us all we need to know about, one, the, the, the self-regard and real arrogance that Mueller has, but also is going to be very interesting when we see journalists who but a few days ago were claiming that Barr not showing up for the latest circus on Capitol Hill, for the, for the shenanigans uh, that they're going to perpetrate against him and, and this all this talk about how Barr might have to go to prison that Democrats were playing, uh, playing publicly for their base. It's, it's just an embarrassment. They should be embarrassed. They're not, but they should be embarrassed. Um, but now those same people, the voices for how we need transparency, we need honesty, we need accountability. Barr must testify. Well, if Barr must testify, why shouldn't the special counsel himself? I heard voices on the left who were calling for the Mueller report uh, to be added to by Mueller himself. Now that Mueller has said he doesn't want to, what are we to make of that? Or that it's not necessary, he won't add anything. Let's see. Other government officials don't get that. They don't get that ability. You, you don't get to be another executive branch employee of the president and say, you know what, Congress, 
I know you, you think you have oversight of me as a government official, senior government, but nah, not really. You don't get to make that call. Oh, uh, just watch how quickly the left will, will turn, do an about face on this. And, and they'll act like we don't have the Internet and Google and can't see what they wrote and said a week ago. And, and the, the claims they were making about Barr and, and what was going to remember, they were they were talking openly about throwing the attorney general in prison, about having a sergeant at arms of the Congress go and arrest him if he did not show up and testify. But now Mueller gets to say, yeah, I'm just going to resign and leave. This is all I got to say. See you later. Nonsense. Complete nonsense. Uh, but then on this on this point of ins- insufficient evidence, I mean, the, the big line here is that, you know, if they could if. If we could have cleared the president, we would have. I mean, that's a paraphrase, but that was the big takeaway from today. If we could have cleared the president of misconduct, we would have. That is not the job of the prosecutor. And that even more importantly is not the legal standard that this society operates under in any respect ever. It is it is not the government's role it is not the government's right to say you sir should or ma'am should have your reputation ruined and should have adverse consequences because we've been unable to prove that you are a hundred percent innocent of this thing we think you might have done no 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 you should only suffer consequences including reputational consequences if the government believes that they can prove beyond a reasonable doubt that you are guilty of a criminal offense. This is the legal foundation upon which our society is built. Mueller is kicking at the load-bearing walls of the rule of law, and the Democrats and the media lackeys are cheering him while he does it. Here's actually exactly how he said it. Play clip 23. The report describes the results and analysis of our obstruction of justice investigation involving the president. The order appointing me special counsel authorized us to investigate actions that could obstruct the investigation. We conducted that investigation and we kept the office of the acting attorney general apprised of the progress of our work. And as set forth in the report, after that investigation, if we had had confidence that the president clearly did not commit a crime, we would have said so. We did not, however, make a determination as to whether the president did commit a crime. What kind of doublespeak is this from a seasoned prosecutor and, you know, super G-man, government man over the FBI? If we could have said he was innocent, we would have. This is a slimy, roundabout way of saying, I mean, he's kind of guilty. We can't prove he's guilty, but he's kind of guilty. And that then brings us to the purpose behind this whole thing. The, The transparent and blatant and obvious purpose for the Mueller presser today, for the Mueller pronouncement from on high of special counsel Landia. This was meant to force the hand of Democrats 
who have been doing this whole Pontius Pilate routine over impeachment. Shall we? Shouldn't we? Who will? Who won't? Good idea, bad idea, someone else make the call. Mueller is clearly saying to the Democrats, this is on you to take now. I did my part for the anti-Trump left. I did my part for the deep state and the establishment. Now it's on you, Pelosi and company, to finish this hatchet job, which is exactly now what I think is, is, going, to, is going to transpire. I'll get more into why I think impeachment now is, is, is essentially inevitable later on in the, in the show. But I just wanted to share a little more on, on how outrageous what happened today really is. Um, it was completely unnecessary. I mean, in one moment, Mueller is telling us, let the report speak for itself. As he's speaking about the report unnecessarily and in a fashion that is clearly meant to undermine the president, to hurt the president. I mean, there's really no uh, serious question about that. I mean, this was meant to destroy the president of the United States or to open up a pathway to destroy him through impeachment and they know he won't be removed from office, but they're hoping that impeachment will be the, the necessary ingredient, the, the special weapon, the secret weapon that can stop the president from winning re-election. That's what all of this is. All that stuff, all the lectures about, oh, the rule of law and the sanctity of our democracy, and it was all just a smokescreen. It was a cover. It was sanctimony from the Democrats and their, and their establishment allies. It was self-righteous blather meant to cover for what was really going on, which was a get Trump operation. This is now the latest stage of the soft coup attempt against the president of the United States. It is disgraceful, and Mueller showed us who he really is today beyond a reasonable doubt. He's trying to take down Trump. He has been all along. And the question I really want him to have to answer is, when did he know this investigation was a farce? How early on and why did he continue it? We have more coming up, team. Stay with me. They interviewed 500 people. Uh, They spent millions and millions of dollars. They put several people in solitary confinement for lengths of time, which frankly should be un-American. If they didn't find it, what are they complaining about? They had all the resources. They had a whole bunch of very smart left-wing lawyers, all of whom disliked Trump. Uh, they went all out, and they didn't get anything. Now, at some point in the hunt, you got to decide there's no deer in the forest. Uh, and the fact is, they couldn't prove anything. And they ought to relax and just say, you know, and in the absence of proof in America, you are innocent. Therefore, by definition, President Trump is innocent. Ah, but you see, while Newt is completely correct here, Democrats are willing to turn centuries of American jurisprudence, and in fact, going back even further than that, to turn English common law and the basis for rule of law in in the Western world on its head to suggest that you should face consequences because a prosecutorial body was unable to prove you did not do something, as in prove your innocence to prove a negative. You know, Democrats have been lecturing us for a long time now 
in the Trump era over just how important our institutions are and how Trump is a danger to those institutions. And we must be on guard to protect them in the era of Trump because of all the the terrible things that he's done. And Trump is so awful and he undermines our democracy, they say. Well, you know, our rule of law is essential to our democracy. And what you have here with with what Mueller did today and the chorus of left-wing partisans who are going out of their way to try and and praise what he has done, and now use this, not just to say that they agree with Mueller's bizarre, uh, counterproductive, and disgraceful press conference, but that they they are going to try to capitalize on it. They're going to try to weaponize the Mueller press conference and use this as a jumping-off point for impeachment proceedings. That tells us a lot, doesn't it? Uh, they do not respect the rule of law. There is no, there is no fundamental, principled uh, sense of respect for the rule of law. They just pretend when it is convenient. They believe in our institutions when they support the power of the left. They believe in our, our, our government apparatus when it's doing their bidding. The law is the law when it's going their way. But at the moment any of that changes, they will cast it all aside. And you see this with the, with the, dare I say, unprecedented actions of some of these anti-Trump partisans. Notice how I say anti-Trump partisans. I know that some of them were formerly Republicans, but some of the people who hate Trump the most are, in fact, either former or even current Republicans. Look at Justin Amash running around saying that Trump should be impeached. What is that guy thinking? I think I know what he's thinking. He's just going to start making friends on the other side. As I've told you, better book deals, better better TV hits. You know, it's it's sweet stuff on the left. If you want to sell out, be a progressive. Ooh, man, there's some there's some good eating over there on the left. You know, the barbecue on the left is tasty. Um, but on the right, you have to be prepared to deal with those who will constantly fight dirty and Mueller is in that camp uh, this is it's unprecedented what James Comey did for example to stand up and say that no federal prosecutor would charge Hillary Clinton that was not his job that was not his call that was not true and it was bizarre that he did it but we are we're to ignore that we're to think that Comey had there, there's nothing about him that is is worthy of of repudiation. There's nothing about him that should give us concern when it comes to the actions he took when he was the most or second most powerful, perhaps, law enforcement officer in the country. That Comey would take memos from his time as FBI director and use them for partisan purposes and leak them to a newspaper. We're not supposed to take notice of that either. That's just a thing that happened that we are to ignore. I'm sorry, I don't, I don't plan on Ignoring it. I don't, I don't accept that. And now Mueller. Mueller has also engaged in unprecedented, bizarre, and I think very telling behaviors. Uh, the decisions about who to prosecute and who not to. Tony Podesta, yeah, he can be a foreign agent and uh, not register, and that's fine. But if you were a Trump person and you didn't register, you got to go to prison. You know, uh, the way that he chose to not choose the decision to not decide about whether the president broke the law. That was very obviously 
a break from prosecutorial precedent. That's not the way it's supposed to work. He should have said, we found sufficient evidence for charges. We leave it to the Justice Department whether those charges can be brought, but we, we either did or did not find sufficient evidence for it. That's it. A crime was committed or not. That's what the prosecutor says. Not, well, you know, it could have gone either way, just FYI, but, you know, let's just leave it there. Unacceptable and unprecedented. Never heard. Have you ever heard? I've never heard of a federal prosecutor doing that. Federal prosecutors I've talked to have never heard of a federal prosecutor doing that. And then this press conference today. What was this all about? What did he add to our understanding here? What, what, was, what was the information that was necessary for him to share with the American people that came from this? Ah, this was not a gentle nudge, but a shove, a public shove toward impeachment proceedings. This was Mueller, who should have absolutely no inclination and certainly not a, a public protestation of his desire for a impeachment proceeding should not happen. This should not have happened. But it did. And it was a very deliberate decision. You know, they, they, he wrote out the statement or his staff wrote out the statement for him. Mueller did not seem like the uh, avenging superhero of the establishment that so many have, have held him out to be. He seemed very kind of, eh. You know, it seemed like a man whose most fierce days are long since gone. I can tell you that. Although he does, he did wield a tremendous amount of power as a special prosecutor. But the precedents get broken. The decisions get made that are inexplicable. And they're always by these senior government officials to harm Trump. They, they never break precedent in his favor. right? They, they never bend the rules. They never do what they can. They never do what's, you know, what, what's in their discretion, but perhaps on the very edge of it to benefit Trump. It's always to hurt Trump and help his rivals, help his opposition. This is not a coincidence. This is not an accident. This is by design. Mueller, my friends, is part of the hashtag resistance, and he always has been. Both Comey and Mueller are trying to have it both ways. They'd like to be statesmen. They'd like for everybody to respect them. Uh, but in Mueller's case, he had two full years. He had a huge team. They wrote a report. Now, if they can't get their report right, I don't know why they're coming back later to tell us what it is they wish they might have said. Uh, and I think Mueller's better off, frankly, just it's over, go home, relax. In Comey's case, I think he's scared to death of what Attorney General Barr is doing. Uh, and the fact that a lot of stuff's going to be uh, come public that's going to make Comey's uh, directorship look really, really bad. Well, I don't think it's much of a reaction. It just repeats the report. He uh, had no evidence or insufficient evidence, which is the same thing for a prosecutor, uh, of collusion. And al although he couldn't reach a decision on obstruction, that's a decision. When a prosecutor can't reach a decision, that's the decision. So there's no case on obstruction. There's no case on collusion. And the report is 430 pages of opinion. The reality is, and he offered his opinion on collusion, he offered his opinion on obstruction, his opinion on collusion was uh, there is no case. His opinion on obstruction was that he couldn't conclude that the president 
uh, committed obstruction. I got to say, I, I think that Mueller really hurt himself today. I think that for those of us who have all along known that, you know, it's more complicated than, you know, he's not just doing the Democrats' dirty work for them. I think that Bob Mueller really believes that he's doing a great service to the country by fighting dirty against Trump. I, I, I believe that. I think that he treats this like he's going up against a mafia kingpin. And if that means he's who's very guilty, you know, in this case, it's Trump. And if that means he's got to plant a little evidence or play a little too rough with the jury or whatever it is, he's going to do it. And that's been his approach all along. That's that's what I've always thought. And what you see today, I believe, just hammers that home. And what the heck was this all about today? <laughs> what, what was going on there? What does he really think has been done other than, well, I think maybe he did it. He did accomplish the goal. The goal was to establish in front of the whole country that the purpose that, that this was really all about impeachment all along, that there were never going to be any charges brought against the president of the United States, no matter what happened here. I, I still think that's a, a very weak argument, though, because there's nothing stopping Mueller from saying if we were able to bring charges we would have brought charges. That is not what he said. And I think, and this is an idea we'll revisit a little later in the show uh, with, with Kamala Harris, but I mean, I, I think that the reason that they want to keep this broad and open because if they pick any specific charge, they'd have to defend whether that's a, re- whether that's a reasonable charge to bring against the president, meaning a specific act. You know, was it firing James Comey? Are, are they really? Because if they said the, the most egregious, the most obvious thing that he did, that, that Trump did that's illegal is firing James Comey, then we could all look at that and come away with, that's not illegal. That's not obstruction. It's his constitutional right to fire, the, fire James Comey for any reason or no reason. So what's really the, what's the obstruction? Why don't we ever hear about the act of obstruction? They say 10 times, 10 times. Okay, what's the worst one? But I'll, I'll revisit this uh, this point later on in the show with you. One, one other thing that came up in this uh, kind of bizarre press conference. Well, we've got Sean Davis from The Federalist joining us in just a few minutes to talk about this. Uh, but one other thing that came up was uh, that uh, the uh, special counsel, Robert Mueller, praised the attorney general, which is, I'm sure, not something that you're going to hear on MSNBC tonight. They're not going to spend time on this. Because the attorney general has been slandered. I mean, he has been slammed and undermined and degraded. And they've done all this stuff trying to make the attorney general of the United States look bad because they view him not just as a they say he's a Trump partisan. The real problem is that he's both an effective, uh, effective in the role of attorney general for this administration, knows the law and is super smart, knows how this game is played. And also they're trying to blunt the weaponry, so to speak, that Barr will have at his disposal when the Inspector General report comes out. That's what this is really all about. That's why they've gone after him so hard. But Mueller had some words of praise for the Attorney General that we should remind ourselves of, and I'll explain why in a moment, but let's let's hear from Bob Mueller himself. Play nine. At one point in time, I requested that certain portions of the report be released. 
The Attorney General preferred to make that preferred to make the entire report public all at once, and we appreciate that the Attorney General made the report largely public, and I certainly do not question the Attorney General's good faith in that decision. Wait, but I thought Barr was engaged in a cover-up. I thought Barr was terrible, and oh, he he should go to prison. And he's this is what the Democrats have been saying. And Mueller came forward. He's like, look, I I wanted there to be, and I, it was this was it's clearly because he he wanted the most damaging narrative possible for Trump. But he says, look, okay, I wanted stuff released earlier. But if we're gonna never mind be fair, just be operating in reality, we we have to take note of the fact that the Attorney General did not have to release almost the full report and did the attorney general did allow for a lot of transparency and and did essentially open up a massive taxpayer funded democrat oppo research effort against the sitting president of the united states leveraging federal law leveraging federal investigative tactics and procedures to do so so uh you know i i just think that you should go back and Try to remember some of the nastiest things said about Barr. And who said them? Who are the people that were claiming that Barr was, you know, Pelosi. Pelosi, for example, even today is saying that, you know, the attorney general thinks. And, and Kamala Harris will say the attorney general thinks that he really is working for the president and not for the American people. Uh, you know, this, this is all just rhetoric and it's, it's all noise and, and nonsense. But ultimately, um, I, I think that Mueller really, this was Mueller's, Avenatti moment in terms of the uh, remember the, the Kavanaugh hearings it was when Avenatti came along with that third accuser Swetnick where I went from I don't believe these women and this is a political hit to gosh darn it this is the most obvious slimiest most disgusting political hit I have ever seen. and anyone who doesn't realize it is either blinded by partisanship or is a moron we're at that now with whether Mueller was operating in good faith they're either blinded by partisanship or just not very bright this guy was going after Trump. He is doing he did strange things and made clear decisions to show that he is an anti-Trump partisan. And we shouldn't have to play this game anymore of pretending like, oh, you're St. Muller and he just did everything by the book. Uh, this wasn't by the book today. He didn't need to hold this press conference today. This was political. This was payback. This was a hit. Sean Davis is up next. But under longstanding department policy. A president, president cannot be charged with a federal crime while he is in office. That is unconstitutional. Even if the charge is kept under seal and hidden from public view, that too is prohibited. The special counsel's office is part of the Department of Justice, and by regulation, it was bound by that department policy. Charging the president with a crime was therefore not an option we could consider. Not an option they could consider. Isn't that interesting that it comes up just when it seems to be most, uh, most convenient for us to hear from this uh, former head of the special counsel team that was trying to take down Trump. We got Sean Davis joining us now. He is the co-founder of The Federalist. He's got a great piece up on thefederalist.com. Mueller just proved his entire operation was a political hit job that trampled the rule of law. I could not agree more as is evident from my tweets about this today. Mr. Sean Davis, great to have you back, sir. Uh, just, just what the heck is Mueller doing? Let's just start there. 
Well, yeah, it was it was a really interesting press conference today. And as I as I wrote in my piece, I was actually thankful for it. It is infuriating as it was because Mueller made clear for everyone to see what many of us had said for two years, which is this was not some upstanding public servant just doing his duty to uphold the rule of law when he took this job. He made clear today this is a political hit job from day one. And and there was one thing in particular which he did, which I thought was absolutely shameful and for which he actually deserves to be sanctioned. Uh, you know, he talked a lot about departmental policy and being bound by DOJ policy. We know there's a lot of DOJ policy and even American Bar Association policy prohibiting the sliming of uncharged third parties, as they say. And, you know, it was one thing for Mueller to write in a confidential report required by law to the attorney general uh, that, you know, maybe he didn't exonerate Trump. Now, I, I don't think it was a great idea, but maybe it, it wasn't totally terrible. But to hold a press conference today, which he did for the express purpose of saying, I think Robert of Mueller refused to exonerate the president is a shameful, shameful abrogation of the law. It is not the job of a prosecutor to exonerate or grant innocence. It's the job of a prosecutor to either prosecute or decide not to prosecute. And again, getting back to DOJ regulations, that was his sole job as a special counsel, was to make the decision to prosecute or not prosecute. And now he's coming out and saying, nah, I didn't, I didn't really feel like doing it. Um, and oh, by the way, Trump's still probably guilty anyway. It was a shameful display today from a hackneyed uh, political schemer and conniver. I love the, the part, and you got into this in your piece, where he he went through some uh, went through some trouble to make it very clear that well the Russians who actually hacked and and did things online with the sock puppets and the you know election interference much overblown election interference in terms of its effectiveness but the election interference such as it was uh, they're innocent until proven guilty but Trump we can't we can't prove his innocence. I was I was shocked. I, I had to go to the transcript afterwards and read it again and then watch the video again. So he made a special point of saying these Russians, these people who aren't even Americans, who tried to steal our elections, who, who we charged in court with criminal wrongdoing, they're innocent. Let, let us not trample on their rights and declare that they're anything but presumed innocent until proven guilty. Um, but, but I'm going to apply a little bit of a different standard to an actual American who hadn't been charged with anything and say, you know what, it's actually his burden to prove his innocence to me, and I declare him dirty. It, it, I, it was so shameful, and it, it reminded me of the horrific press conference that James Comey gave against Hillary. Now, <clears throat> I don't like Hillary Clinton, and I'm glad she's not president, but his business of going out there and, and saying, you know what, she, we're not charging her with anything. But why, By the way, she's actually kind of a terrible person, and here's all the bad things she did. And um, but we didn't charge her. So she's not going to get her day in court. So she can never really clear her name from the mud that I'm throwing at her right now. Oops. I mean, you can see why Mueller and Comey are such good friends. Apparently, corrupt birds of a feather flock together. I also noted that the special counsel, former special counsel, uh, said that the report, the work speaks for itself as he's speaking weeks after the report was released about the report. Does he? Is he not up on irony? I didn't really understand how he could miss this. Right. It was a 448-age report, which has been out for nearly six weeks. I think April 18th is when it came out. So we're looking at, uh, well, like 42, or, you know, 43 days. 
Um, he says that the work speaks for itself. I'm not going to testify. The work is its testimony, is my testimony. The work speaks for itself, which is why I'm here six weeks later, uh, blabbering on like a doddering, senile old fool uh, about something which allegedly speaks for itself. And, th- and that's another thing that I thought was very strange today. This is not the Robert Mueller I remember. Is the cowering, uh, authoritative FBI director uh, holding court um, with a complete command of the facts. What I saw today wasn't this all-in-command prosecutor. It, I felt like I was watching uh, a senile nonagenarian senator read for the very first time a statement which had been written for him by his staff. It, it was a thoroughly unimpressive performance, both in style and in substance. Now, I mean, you used to work on the on the Hill as a as a Senate investigator, uh, Sean. The possibility of Mueller getting subpoenaed here, he, he seemed to think that he just gets to kind of do this mic drop of like, I'm resigning from DOJ. This is all I'm saying. Booyah, we're done here. I'm out. Can he and shouldn't he be subpoenaed? Well, he, it, it, if there were a congressional body capable of doing actual work other than reading its own press clips and going on TV, absolutely. But, but already this morning, Lindsey Graham uh, who previous to now uh, seemed to think his oversight duties consisted of just signing on to letters Chuck Grassley wrote. Uh, he, who is now judiciary chairman, said, you know, no, no, it's over. It, this is over as, as long as, as far as I'm concerned. You know, Mueller said the report speaks for itself, and we have the report. So, yeah, I'm case closed. I'm done, we, which I think is just shameful. Bring that man and put him under oath and make him answer the questions that nobody else can seem to, to answer from his committee. You know, where did all these leaks come from? Why didn't you look at Christopher Steele? Glenn Simpson lied before Congress. Why didn't you bring up him up? Why didn't you look into Russians doing deliberate disinformation through this dossier, which you for some reason used as a roadmap rather than proof of actual Russian collusion by the Clintons? These are all things that Robert Mueller should be forced to testify to under oath, and yet apparently nobody in Congress really seems to care. Including the Republicans, though? That's just bizarre. I... I I, I don't I don't understand. All I know is uh, Graham went on Twitter twice today to say, no, this is case closed. Report for, speaks for itself. We're done here. Oh, my gosh. It's really it's just maddening. Um, but, you know, when the IG report comes out, there may be renewed interest. And perhaps then they'll be willing to do what needs to be done here and, and get Mueller under uh, under oath and in front of the American people. I, I want I've always wanted him to testify. By the way, do, do you think that you'll see a shift here where people who were clamoring, you know, journos who were clamoring for Mueller to testify, but a few weeks ago will now stand behind him and say he shouldn't have to testify. He wrote the report. Oh, no, we've, we've already seen that. We, we went from Democrats saying, oh, when Mueller's done, you, you, you bet your took is he's going to come here and testify under oath about what he did. And yet now we see Nadler, we've seen other House Democrats say, eh, you know, maybe, maybe not. Maybe, maybe we're just going to do our own investigation and We'll just leave him alone. What are they afraid of? I mean, are they afraid of him having to answer tough questions, or are they afraid of him dissembling uh, like he did during his conference today uh, when it becomes apparent that, you know, maybe this guy wasn't calling the shots. Maybe he was just a doddering old figurehead completely out to lunch, daydreaming like Walter Mitty, uh, and it was actually Andy Weissman doing the, the dirty work all the way along. But, but either way, nobody in Congress seems to be interested in hearing from this guy anymore, which is really curious. We're going to have to make some noise about this. This is unacceptable. We've got to get this guy under oath. Sean Davis, everybody. Best thing I've read today on the Mueller press conference is Sean's piece. Mueller just proved his entire operation was a political hit job that trampled the rule of law. It's up on thefederalist.com right now. Sean, thanks so much. Thank you, Buck. All right. The I word, impeachment. Yep. Democrats are obsessed with it. We'll talk about that. Stay with me. Unfortunately, 
Special Counsel Mueller was unable to pursue criminal charges against the president because Department of Justice policy prevents a sitting president from being prosecuted. That policy, in my opinion, is wrong, but it prevented the special counsel from pursuing justice to the fullest extent possible. Therefore, as Mueller again highlighted this morning, it falls to Congress to respond to the crimes, lies, and other wrongdoing of President Trump. We will do so. Make no mistake, no one, not even the President of the United States, is above the law. He did say if he saw any evidence that the President was not um, was innocent, he would have let us know. If he had any evidence that the President was not uh, guilty, he would have let us know, but he didn't. He didn't, and I think that was very, very important. I am gravely disappointed in the Justice Department for their attitude, uh, their uh, misrepresentation of the Mueller report to begin with, their uh, hiding behind something that you could never find in the Constitution, that the president is above the law. That, wait, they're hiding behind it or Mueller's hiding behind it? What? Nancy Pelosi's not making sense again, folks. We all know what this is. We know what Mueller was trying to do. It couldn't be any more clear. It's a handoff. The impeachment handoff, passing the partisan baton to the Democrats to try and finally get Trump. Couldn't get him legally. Now they want to get him politically, although those two things were always inextricably linked all along the way. Trey Gowdy was making the rounds today. He knows exactly what this is. He, he, he gets it. Play clip 21. What you're going to have now for the next 14 months is an impeachment investigation by folks who have already made up their mind. I mean, 60 of them wanted to impeach him before Mueller wrote a right. single syllable of his report. The jury's never going to convict him. So we're going to be in this state of chaos for the next 14 months. Look, I don't think that there's a prosecutable case for obstruction. I don't know everything, but from what I've seen, firing Jim Comey is not obstruction of justice. 14 months. According to Trey Gowdy, I mean, who knows what the real timeline will be, but it's all going to be about impeachment. That's that's the game. And here's what I'll, here's what I'll tell you. They're, they're doing it, folks. Today is the day when we finally see, and I've thought all along, and I'm sure if we went back in the show archives, we would find me at least a few times saying that they're, they're going to impeach. The left is going to force them to impeach. The left will not have it any other way. This is the most hated president by the left since Ronald Reagan, and is really much more hated even than Reagan was um, by progressives. We have reached a, a, a level of anti-conservative, anti-Republican derangement that I, I can't think of any time, and certainly in my lifetime, that there's been anything close to this. I don't know if there ever has. I can't speak for all of American history, but certainly worth thinking about. Impeachment's going to happen. They're going to impeach this president. It's going to happen they can't control the left-wing loons enough. Um, they, they can't get this to, they can't put this genie back in the bottle, so to speak. They can't put the horse back in the barn. They're going to impeach. And now I'll, I'll say this as well. There's been this, be very careful in politics these days about the conventional wisdom because there has been this conventional wisdom out there for quite some time that Democrats would suffer they would suffer politically if they impeach the president truth is we don't know 
We don't know. I, I would like to say to you, and I think it's, it's certainly plausible, that after a two-year just complete disgrace of an investigation um, of the Russia collusion with the Trump campaign, after all that, I'd like to think that there'd be enough sane, reasonable Americans left who are the the persuadable or undecided voters in the next election. Enough of them are saying where they realize that, you know, there was it didn't matter that Trump was innocent. It never mattered to the Democrats. It was always just about destroying his presidency and that they will that those voters will reject that and will punish Democrats for it. I'd like to think that that's the case. I'd like to believe that that will happen but i don't know if it will we don't know no one knows everyone who says oh look at look at clinton the mp yeah clinton had already you know he had already won his second term uh, you know who, who knows how this one will play out in every political situation every moment in time has its own has, a, has its own nuances has its own deciding factors at play uh, you know who knows where this will go I mean, I'd like to believe that people will start to listen to Sarah Huckabee Sanders' point of view on this one. I mean, obviously, she's a mouthpiece for the president, but play clip 19. He reiterated the points that he'd already made in the report, um, and we agree with him. There was no collusion. There was no conspiracy, and we consider this case closed. He completed his investigation. Now he's closed his office, and it's time for everybody to move on. He's going back to his uh, private life, and we think everybody else should, too. It is case closed. Now it's impeachment open. Case closed, impeachment open. That's what we're heading into. We're going to have a, a fierce election battle play out. And we are going to have a simultaneous to that. And really, as a part of that, an impeachment battle. I, I'm convinced. I, I could be wrong, but I'm convinced this is happening now. I don't know how. You've had all these different Democrat candidates you know, Harris and Booker. And I mean, I can't even keep up with all the different ones who are saying that, you know, now there's an obligation, an ethical obligation to impeach the president of the United States. Um, there will be great irony in it if, in fact, that impeachment helps Trump win reelection. I, I do think that that is possible. Um, but I, I don't I don't sit here and, and pretend I'm in the prediction business. I'm in the pundit business. Just talking about interesting stuff. Any predictions I make that are correct, we'll revisit. Any predictions I make that are wrong, we'll forget about. That's how we roll in the Freedom Hut. Uh, we have more on this. And uh, what is the truth of Biden and some of the other top candidates? We'll get into that in a moment. Yeah, he's Uncle Joe. Everybody likes their fluffy uncle. But he's Barack Obama's friend. He's got the cool black friend. Right? That's all it is. Joe has a terrible history in the black community. And everybody just loves him because he's the fluffy old guy. He has given us no policies. This African-American voter who was talking about Joe Biden there at this MSNBC town hall, he gets it. I mean, it's, he, he almost sounds like he listens to the Buck Sexton show. Joe Biden is a nothing burger. Joe Biden has, in so many ways, betrayed, forget about whether you, know, you agree with progressive ideas or not, betrayed the left throughout his time when it was popular when it was good for joe biden to be tough on crime he was mr mass incarceration when it was good for joe biden to be you know wanting us to invade the country or not it, it, whatever it was 
if it was good for Joe Biden, that's what he was for. Quintessential politician, classic demagogue, pure demagogue. That's who this guy is. And I, you know, with, with within the black community, it is it is befuddling to me. I have I've spoken to to friends of mine and I've spoken to colleagues at the Hill who are Democrats and African-American pundits and pollsters and people who work in in politics and certainly have their uh, have their finger on the pulse of, of the black community, especially in, in different states where they're running campaigns and such. And they're telling me that, well, they they like Biden because of Obama. And I just think, how is that? Why is that transferable? Anybody could have been Obama's vice president. It really didn't matter. Joe Biden didn't accomplish anything as vice president. That was noteworthy. Joe Biden didn't do anything for the African-American community. And you have two African-American candidates in the mix. And, you know, I, I just, if I'm Cory Booker, I'm Kamala Harris. Look, the, the left is the is the side that is always telling us that identity matters and that, you know, they're, just think about what poor, uh, what's his name, Swalwell. Yeah, you know, there are areas where I just don't think that I, you know, I really have an understanding because I just need to confront my whiteness. And, you know, he has to do that whole mea culpa for his whiteness thing. Uh, you know, but you have you know, these candidates who are part of the African-American community who are not getting the support that this old super white dude Joe Biden is because of, of the connection to Obama. I just don't understand it. People say that it's because they think Biden is electable. And I, and I, and I get this. This is the answer I'm told frequently that because Biden is the most electable, he therefore is the, has the best chance of protecting what is considered to be important policy issues to the black community. But to this, I just say, well, he's electable because they say he's electable, meaning that if you had fewer people in the African-American community and fewer in the Democrat primary in general across the board who were supportive of um, uh, you know, Joe Biden, he wouldn't be electable, right? It's a self-fulfilling prophecy. I mean, this guy is, I mean, there's a part of me, I, maybe I should stop with this, although I know I'm not talking to that many Democrats here on the show. Most of you are on the right, and you are right thinking, thank heavens. Uh, although Democrats that listen to the show, welcome. You have an open mind, and you like to uh, listen to smart stuff and learn cool things, so good for you. Give you credit. Um, and and I, and I do want, I want more Democrats listening to the show. I, I want people to convert to my way of thinking. I believe truly in what I say here on the show, day in and day out. I want people to agree with me. I want to persuade them. I'm not just here to bash the left. I want the left to know why I think much of what they do is worthy of bashing. And let them know the door is always open to our side. They're always welcome to come. You know, the water's warm here in conservatism. Please jump in. But this Biden phenomenon to me is, is uh, just indicative of a party that has kind of lost its way and perhaps is so steeped in Trump hatred at this point that there's a, a sense of just grasping to what was known in the past in the pre-Trump hatred era of the Obama years. Uh, but Biden is not, a, not an impressive guy, not somebody that I think is going to be a particularly strong candidate, which is what I was going to say before. And I, I, don't want, I don't want to give the other side too much advice here. 
Um, but I, I do not think that putting Biden forward is going to be something that works for them the way they think it's, meaning Democrats, the way they think it's going to work. Uh, but then again, Booker and Harris, you know, they're desperate, not, not just to shore up their support with the African-American community, but with primary voters in general. Um, Booker just always seems kind of phony to me. I, I don't know. I, I, don't, I think that he lacks, in an era of where there's a kind of craving for, well, I was going to say political authenticity, but is Joe Biden authentic? I certainly don't think so. Um, but at, at a time when if you're considered a kind of, uh, if people think of you as a phony, whether you are a phony or not, I think you're in a really tough spot trying to win elections, especially at the national level. I think that Booker just, there's something about him that doesn't really connect. And, and same with, with Kamala Harris. I mean, there, there's a lack of political skills, a, a lack of that X factor, that, that charisma that's necessary to garner enough support. And I'm talking about from their own, their own side. You know, I'm talking about from people who are supportive of their ideas and their ideology. Uh, but they're now jumping on the impeachment bandwagon, which we, we knew was going to happen. And uh, this is an effort now to try to differentiate from the rest of the pack. Although after today, it's not surprising you have more people than ever, more Democrats than ever talking impeachment. Here's, here's uh, Kamala Harris uh, saying where she stands on this issue. Play four. On the issue of impeachment, let's be clear. You know, I've read the Mueller report. There are at least 10 separate incidents of obstruction of justice. But there is no question that the evidence supports a prosecution of that case. I believe that there needs to be transparency. There needs to be accountability. There is a clear track record of this president and members of his administration obstructing justice, not to mention what we have seen from the current attorney general of the United States, who I questioned in the connection with the Judiciary Committee, who clearly thinks his job is to represent the president and his peculiar interest as opposed to representing the people of the, of the country in which we live. So there is a lot of work to do, and I plan on seeing it through. So Kamala Harris, I want to ask you, uh, since you won't appear on this show, at least 10 instances of obstruction of justice. So you charge all 10? This is not just an, this is not an idle, idle question. This, this matters. Which one? It's often the case, and she would know this because she's a former prosecutor, in fact, was a pretty rough one from what I understand, would like to, like to lock people up during her time in San Francisco. Uh, you usually go with the charge that is the most readily provable, and you offer that. We say, we're going to bring the indictment on this one, and then you see if you can get a plea deal, right? And if they won't, then you can always add in a superseding indictment additional charges. Which, which is the, of the 10... Which is the act of obstruction that is the most clear, the most egregious, the most provable? They'll never, they'll never tell us. They never settle on one. You know why that is? Because if they picked one and they focused in on that, what they would risk is that we'd be able to say, well, hold on a second. That's not obstruction. That's not a strong case. And if that is your strongest instance of obstruction and it is not able to persuade, it is, it is not really strong at all what does that say about the other so-called instances of obstruction so they, they they want to keep it broad they want this this vagueness of the general concept of obstruction and oh this this is like what they say with trump's lies they do the same thing trump has lied ten thousand times okay what's the really bad trump lie 
Try this with a liberal sometime. Ask them this. What's the thing that Trump lied about that, that really mattered to you and that was just, you know, was just too much? You'll get nothing. That his crowd, what, his crowd size was the biggest ever at his inauguration? I mean, are, are we adults? Are we having a serious conversation? Who the heck cares about that? What's the lie along the lines of if you like your health care plan, you can keep it? You know, what is the lie that was told willfully and deliberately? And I'm not saying that Trump hasn't lied about different things. I'm just saying, notice how they'll tell you he's the worst liar ever, but they, but they, and he's lied so many times. But then you say, well, what's the really bad lie? Well, then they just want to go back to 10,000 lies. Look at what the Washington Post says. Thousands and thousands and thousands of lies. When you dig into those lies, I would note, you see that some of them aren't lies at all. And the Washington Post isn't so stupid as to not know that, but they're just trying to pad things. They're trying to, you know, uh, to, to boost up the numbers quite a bit. It's, it's, it's ridiculous. Um, and it's wrong. But Kamala Harris's thing here about how she's, uh, there, there are 10, 10 different instances that they could charge on obstruction. Give me one, Ms. Harris. Give me, or Senator Harris, give me one. And let's pull that one apart. Let's see what you got. What's the best shot you can take for obstruction at this president? They, they never tell you. And then to throw the attorney general in there too, A.G. Barr, that's just pandering. That's all that is. That is just straight up pandering. And, and she knows it. Oh, you know, A.G. Barr doing that. Is she saying he's a criminal? Should Attorney General Barr go to prison? Remember what Attorney General Barr said to Nancy Pelosi? Did you bring your handcuffs? Because these people are a joke. These Democrats are a joke. And it's time that they be treated as such. You don't need to show them all this deference and respect. Oh, Nancy Pelosi. No, Nancy Pelosi is a clown. A clown. Although, unfortunately, they're doing real damage to the country in this whole process and undermining these so-called sacred institutions they pretend so much to care about when it benefits them politically in the short term. So, team, I've got a little uh, announcement to make uh, for all of you. Um, you're getting advance, you're getting advance word about this, but just in case you happen to be among those who have, have enjoyed my, my time, uh, trying to have a respectful conversation with the other side on Hill TV, uh, next week is going to be my last week, uh, on Hill TV. I am, uh, going to be pursuing other projects as in focusing on this show, and focusing on um, podcasts and some of the some of the things that many of you have been asking about, uh, I'm going to be uh, leaving and on, on very good terms. And I, I thank the management at the Hill uh, for the opportunity and for the the uh, investment in me. And and it's been a very interesting year and a lot of growth. But uh, last week, or rather next week, is going to be my last week at Hill TV. So um, Crystal and I are going to be sitting next to each other for about six more shows and that's going to be all she wrote on that one. Um, and look, I, I, I have nothing but, uh, but fondness for my, my co-host and, and I, um, you know, that's, and as you know, I, I will do not, uh, criticize my friends and she is certainly a friend. I will say it is very challenging to do a left, right show in the current environment. I mean, how do you have a, how do you have a civilized and fair minded and worthwhile conversation about, is the president a traitor, for example, which is a topic that the media forces us to cover because that's an allegation that Democrats will make and have made many times against the president. You know, how do you have a civil conversation about is Donald Trump insane, you know, legally, mentally 
incompetent, not not able to medically speaking hold the job of how do you have a, a real conversation with someone about that, with anyone about that? Uh, so I'm excited to have the uh, the license going forward. And this is going to be the way I conduct my uh, all of this was an experiment to try to have the all right, let's have a conversation. Now I'm just going to have the buck conversation, as in this is what I think about all of the things. Here's what people need to know. And if they want to have an exchange of ideas with me, that's fine. But I reserve the right to say that the other side's ideas are stupid, including to anyone's face. And anyone who does not want to have that conversation with me after I'm done at the Hill should not talk to me from the other side. doesn't mean I'll always say that. doesn't mean I'm not willing to have a civil conversation. It just means I reserve the right to be able to say that is some dumbass stuff. Uh, so that will be a bit of a change for me. Obviously, here on radio, I can say whatever I want, which is great and always have and always will. Um, but going forward, I will not commit my... I told you this. At the Hill, I committed to trying to have a both sides of the aisle conversation. It was challenging. I learned a lot. I am not doing that again. That's that's not that's not in my future, folks. That's not happening. So <laughs> I can tell you uh, if that if that explains feel about it well then there we go but i did get the chance because of what i've done over the last year some of my my favorite uh stuff that i've been able to do has involved speaking to particularly our some of the left-wing guests that i've uh, i've had some spirited exchanges with and you know today i i wasn't really in a i'll just tell you tell you what's really going on here i, I didn't get much sleep last night so i wasn't full of full of zest and energy this morning but we had on a uh i think either national spokesperson or a president or something, a very senior person from the National Organization of Women now. Her name is Tony Van Pelt. And she came on the show. And she would never, look, people ask me sometimes, Buck, why won't you have on more liberals on your radio show? They won't come on here. They'll get, they know what's going to happen. Especially if they want to have a, a productive conversation and respectful conversation, that's fine, but they don't. They want to go into talking points and they want to, you know, they want to engage in the kind of intellectual laziness and emotional blackmail that are central to left wing argument. That's that's what you get on so many of these different issues. Uh, so they won't they won't do it. And I won't waste my time with them, even if they would do it uh, in most cases, not in all cases. But uh, Ms. Van Pelt was talking about these recent decisions from the Supreme Court involving the abortion law in Indiana. And I, I just want you to note, I'm being very calm because she knows, you know, it's like when the uh, head of Planned Parenthood, who recently got four Pinocchios for being a liar and lying, this is the head of Planned Parenthood. I can't remember her name now, Dr. Something or other. Um, she said that thousands of women die from, used to die from abortions. That's not true. That's just a lie that the abortion lobby keeps saying that thousands of women a year used to die from abortions. It's not true at all. They believe it might have been like a dozen a year, something like that. Um, but they say a thousand women a year. That's, that's not accurate. She lied. But they had identified me. And this is a frustration that I had at the Hill because much of, uh, much of the Hill TV um, staff were very liberal. And I am not liberal. So <laughs> as you know. So there was always a little bit of a dis a little bit of a disconnect in this regard, but th they were informed that I was considered an enemy of choice by Planned Parenthood, which is a something that I wear as a badge of honor, and I, I should probably get a T-shirt that says "Enemy of Choice," although it wouldn't be clear to everybody what choice I'm an enemy of. Um, 
But anyway, Tony Van Pelt knows that I'm not on I'm not on her team. So she sits down and launches right in. This is from the National Organization for Women, far left group. All of, you know, think of a progressive women's issue and they're all over it. And here's how some of the conversation went. Apologies for me not having more energy. Play clip 13. I'm very sad by this and I'm and of course upset and many women in the country are very angry by the fact that these men have made this decision about their bodily integrity when it's really none of their business. But it wasn't just men who weighed in on this. It was a 7-2 decision and a, bun a couple of liberals actually went along with it. So well, why are you saying just men? Because it is driven by men. I'm, I'm uh, uncertain as to what you're talking about. It is an undue burden on women. Well, I mean, Kagan joined the majority. I mean, when you say men, I mean, my understanding is that Kagan joined the majority here. She's obviously a woman. Thanks for bringing right. up that point. Right, right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thank you for bringing up that point. Yeah, you idiot. It wasn't just men. A woman went with the majority here saying that, yeah, they can dispose, the state can say that you have to dispose of this as you would human remains, because that's what it is, human remains. It's a human being. Um, but, no, but notice that, that you know, the, the sort of snide, yeah, what she said was stupid. And I just, I didn't call it stupid. I just made it obvious that it's stupid by saying that, you know, you're saying that men made this decision, but it wasn't just men. A woman made this decision too. And two liberals went along with the conservatives on the court here. So why go with the, why go with the nonsense talking point? But let's, let's dig a little deeper into the nonsense talking points here. Play 14. Why should the gender of the justice matter in these cases? Why should the gender of the justice matter? Yeah. In this particular case, we're talking about particular men uh, that hold these views, and that's why it would matter. Uh, what about the fact that in Roe v. Wade, all of the majority were men? Does that then affect their ability to weigh in in an impartial and fair manner in your mind? They're not here, and we're not talking about that now. We're talking well, about today. I'm just trying today. to establish a principle as to why it is that the gender of the justice should matter. I really don't see that as an important to this, to this discussion because what we're talking about is women here. We're not talking about men except in the way that men try to control women and that's why Madam it Madam, respectfully, matter. the first thing you said when you sat down is this is a decision by a bunch of men. So that's I think, right. I, okay. And I just said that it is men who are trying to control women. That's why it's so important that we put more women onto uh, the state legislatures. Now notice how she, she spits out there, you know, ugh, men are the ones pushing this decision as if they're allowed to push decisions about women's bodies. And all, I'm, all I say to her, this is very straightforward. I mean, she's obviously a, a truly brainwashed left-wing pro-abortion automaton. All I say to her is, okay, well, Roe v. Wade was all men. The, all of the majority in Roe v. Wade, men. Does, does that mean that, you know, the, when men do what you want them to do, they have full agency, full license on the court, to weigh in on women's bodies and what they can and can't do. But when they don't do it, they're men they're not allowed to. I, I think she's just not clever enough to understand what I was trying to uh, explain to her. It's, not, it's actually not complicated. This is, I, Producer Mike, is she the president of the National Organization for Women? I think she's something. Like, either that or the, or the national spokesperson for it. She's yeah, like she's the president. The president of the National Organization for Women, folks. Whew. Not Not impressive. Not smart. Let's just say it. Not somebody who under and and I I think that it, it's it's not that she's a dumb person per se. It's her arguments are dumb. Her understanding of the issue is dumbed down because it has to be because otherwise it falls into contradiction. That's why she she is a little brainwashed 
soldier of sorts for her side who is told to just go and 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 attack the other side. And she's not told why or how or anything else. She just knows that this is for women and abortion is a right and doesn't think beyond that. And then I just ask, well, just one more question, just to give you a sense of what the other side, what the Democrats really want here. This is what I asked the president of the National Organization for Women. Play 15. Should abortions be directly subsidized by taxpayers? I think that all health care should uh, not be subsidized, but it's a universal right for people. That's my personal So position. tax dollars should go toward abortions, which you believe is part of health care? All health care. Birth okay. control, sex education, abortion. Classic abortion lobby maneuver there. You'll notice what I asked her is a very straightforward yes or no question. Should tax dollars go toward abortion? She says, you know, uh, well, all health care is a yeah, yeah, yeah. So is that a yes or a no? Well, let's talk about all this other. This is what this is what Planned Parenthood does. Oh, we're all about mammograms and, and giving out birth control and also abortion. Why, why do you have to always talk about the other stuff? Why can't if abortion is fine, why don't you just talk about abortion? They can't argue on the merits. They can't have a real discussion about this because they're wrong. You should know that you should remember that. And when the National Organization for Women is releasing these statements and all this left-wing claptrap that they're constantly pumping out there, just remember that I was able to, with very, I wasn't yelling, I wasn't raising my voice, just ask a few questions and not just poke holes, but really just eviscerate this woman's position that men have no right to say what goes on when it comes to abortion. Uh, no, actually, this is about life and the protection of life. This isn't a gender issue. That's what the left doesn't understand, and that's what the left cannot accept. Because once we frame this as an issue of protecting and defending life, uh, then their position becomes untenable, which is also why they don't want the uh, fetal remains to be treated as what they are, which are the remains of small human beings. But National Organization for Women, zero. Buck and righteousness and the good guys, one. We'll be right back. Missouri's last abortion clinic could be shut down this Friday. But the governor there, Mike Parson is his name, signed a bill into law banning abortion after eight weeks of pregnancy. The St. Louis clinic closes. Missouri will become the first state effectively to end all legal abortion service since Roe versus Wade. Forcing women to wait 72 hours, even having unnecessary invasive pelvic exams. Isn't that dangerous? It's bad for health care. It's also traumatizing for women, especially women who've suffered sexual assault and rape. Mm -hmm. But now the state is threatening to prosecute our doctors. Planned Parenthood is more than just abortions. I think people need to understand that too. Yes, safe, legal abortion care, because that's what it is. It's health care. Donations, they are going up. True? They are, and I hope that people will keep on supporting Planned Parenthood and other organizations that provide essential health care. As you say, it's not a drill. Listen to all that Planned Parenthood propaganda, not just from Lena Wynn, who I've now remembered her name, is the president of Planned Parenthood, um, a, a, a ghoulish organization, uh, but all the different media outlets there. Oh, the media is, on the issue of abortion, the media is as far left as they are on anything. In fact, I think that the, the media apparatus is reflective of the most extreme and it is, it is mainstream in journalism to be extreme on the issue uh, of, of abortion. Um, but notice how the, there, there's this difference between the way they'll talk about uh, different rights 
uh, constitutional right to bear arms, for example. Oh, but that there there can be you know, they want waiting periods, uh, background checks upon background checks, limitations on magazine size, limitations on type of weapon, limitations on transfer of weapon, limit, you know, all these different, you know, fill out paperwork, mental health screening for it, all this stuff for what is legitimately a constitutionally protected right, the right to bear arms. But then when they talk about what the, the completely phony and fake constitutional right to an abortion, it's, oh, Women might have to wait a day or two for their abortion. They might have to have a pelvic exam. You can tell from the way the president of Planned Parenthood talks about it. They want people to get, they want people in getting an abortion like they're being like they're being handed a lollipop. I mean, it's just, you know, you don't know what's going on. You're you're in and out. No one knows. No one talks. No one sees. Just boop. Well, I, I'm sorry. What about can we can we even talk about the cleanliness of the facilities oh no no they can't be you don't need admitting privileges for a hospital for the doctors or anything it needs to no no limitations no restrictions nothing they just want it to be fast quick taxpayer funded they want it mechanized they want it to be like a machine and uh that is in fact what's going on here the uh, mechanized murder of of small children all right i i I, I will uh, change it up here for a moment. I don't want to go too too much on this, but I did think the conversation with the president of the National Organization from Women today was worth your time. Um, AOC. We're going to talk in a few minutes about a organization that I don't know if it's real or not, but it seems to be real, and it's a left-wing thing. AOC addressed the cow fart controversy uh, earlier this week. That's right, cow farts. It's a thing. And uh, I just want to let you know that that she's kind of doubled down on the cow fart issue. Play clip one. We need to innovate on our technology. You know, right. obviously, like I had a Stafford, you know, release a document that talked about cow flatulence, but um, which is an issue. I just want to say an issue. But here's it sounds ridiculous, but it literally is but an it, issue. But it actually is an issue when it comes to contributing to methane. Right. But that doesn't mean you end cows. It means that we need. <laughs> What it means is that we need to innovate and change yes. our our grain, uh, our our cow grain from which you know they feed in, in these troughs. That yep. we need to uh, really take a look at regenerative agriculture. Like these are our solutions. Right. These are our solutions. What the heck is she talking about? I mean, she doesn't know, so it's fair to ask. She doesn't know what she's talking about. So should we really know what she's talking about? I think that's probably asking too much. But we're going to change the grain we feed the cows so they have less methane in the farts. This is the, the vanguard of the Democratic Party. The, the ideological front line of the left. AOC, my friends. Somebody who thinks that the answer to any difficult question is, we just need to innovate. Let's just, like, innovate. We'll innovate the farts away from the cows. White women, you are coming to the table to bear witness to our pain. This is the, the headline. This is the, the main wording that you see on this uh, website for something that I'm, I, I will say this right up front. I, I did not think at first that this, is, uh, that this was real. Um, my assumption is still that it is, is possible that this is some kind of hoax. But I, I'm not able to say that it's a hoax because so far it seems like this is a real thing. So if it turns out that this is a, a high concept hoax, I would just say to you all, well, I, how can you know? 
but it, it is a website that is up right now. And, well, uh, I'll have to explain to you what this is. And you can tell me what you think. Uh, it's called Race to Dinner. And here's their mission statement. Our mission statement is simple. Reveal the naked truth about racism in America and your complicity as white women. This isn't the stuff of Trump, the KKK, and Nazis. That's easy, it's obvious, and denouncing it requires almost nothing of white folks. What's hard? Looking at yourself in the mirror and acknowledging that, as a white person in America, you are an active participant in upholding white supremacy. This isn't personal. This doesn't make you bad. This is systemic. And this makes you human who is part of that system. As black and brown women, we too are humans who are part of the system. Only we are on the other side. We are on the receiving end of white supremacy while you are on the giving end. Until and unless white folks are willing to bear witness to the pain they've caused, we will never see change. The system of oppression will remain safely in place until white people, all white people, are willing to acknowledge their complicity. This, I think this is, look, it's not written in a way that it's clear that it's supposed to be a kind of satire. I think this is real. I think this is real. They have a donation page. They have contact information. You know, this was making the rounds on, on social media today. And it's hard to know. And with the left, this, this reminds me of how with an Ocasio-Cortez quote, I find myself saying, there's no way Ocasio-Cortez said something that stupid. And, oh, no, it turns out she did. So with this, this is, as bizarre, this is so bizarre that there's a part of me that insists, that, that refuses to believe this is real. But the way it's written is very much in line with social justice rhetoric and mainstream thinking on the left. This is this has now become mainstream. The idea that white supremacy, which used to be reserved as a description for neo-Nazis with swastika tattoos, shaved heads and, you know, uh, big boots on. Right. That uh, that used to be what you thought of as white supremacy. Now, white supremacy is the you know lack of PA, uh, minority PhDs in the top math programs in the country or something. I mean, that, that's now considered white supremacy, which is a dramatic downgrading of that of that definition and to, and to expand it into a whole lot more stuff. And this uh, this concept that, that's being forwarded here, that the systemic injustice in, in our society is just a form of pervasive white supremacy that all white people are complicit in. This creates a, a dynamic, a, a power dynamic that is meant to force people to adopt certain political positions and postures, in this case, white people, uh, for the benefit, the political benefit and power of non-white people in America who are a part of this left-wing identity politics movement. That's what this is. And that's where you get this race to dinners idea again. Here's what it says uh, about it. Quote, white women, we are talking about you. We are talking about your complicity in upholding white supremacy and keeping us brown and black women down. You are an integral part of this system. Uh, our goal is to dig out the tumor called white privilege power control and reveal it for what it is. 
Making white women comfortable isn't our goal. Our goal is to be seen, to be heard, and to have you, white women, bear witness to our pain, pain you have caused. Ready? And this is the idea here, folks, is that there will be a dinner, a dinner where white women attend with minority women present. Look, again, if this is a hoax, I'm sorry that I'm, I, I know in a way, I, maybe I'm falling for it, but. It it seems believable enough to me. Uh, it's a real site. It is getting shared around. Uh, you know how? Can, and this this is even if it is fake. Even if this is meant to be uh, some kind of satire, um, it is exposing or or it is elevating what is what is mainstream thinking on the progressive left. How can you host a dinner? They ask on this site. Please consider why you want to join to dinner with Regina and Sarah. Um, if it's to learn or to feel better or to be a good ally, reconsider. This dinner is not for you or about you. The dinner will be painful, uncomfortable, maddening, and upsetting. But what you'll experience listening to our stories doesn't come close to the pain of living as a brown or black woman in America. Are you truly ready to join us? Step two, plan your race to dinner. Now you think you're ready to bear witness to our pain? Let's get started. The next step is to contact Jessica Majeris, our program director, and she will help you get going. Click here to smash your white fragility. I, I mean, I think this is, I don't know, is it real or fake? It seems real enough to me. Uh, it seems like this could be, you know, I'm, I'm doing the basic Google searches on this to see if people are calling this, uh, you know, a no, I don't I don't think that, that this is this is nuts that you have to bear witness to the pain of uh, black and brown women as as part of this. I mean, people are writing about this. I see the let me see here. This is Jesse uh, single who's a writer for New York Magazine, he says that this service allows white women to hire women of color to come to dinner so the white women can bear witness to our pain, the pain that the women who invited the white women of, uh, the women of color to dinner have caused. Race to dinner nicely sums up contemporary upscale progressivism. So this is a New York Magazine guy who's he's treating this as real. I mean, maybe, I guess this is real. And when I think about what I was subjected to even in college with some of the diversity training that we had, where they would bring in these professional paid speakers who would uh, essentially come in and tell all the white people in the room, and I was one of them, so I remember, that you are not doing enough to combat racism, that you are part of an unjust system, that you have not earned as much as you think you have earned, that you have oppressed more than you think you have oppressed, and that you have to make amends. And if you disagree or you don't make amends, it's because you have not confronted the reality of your white privilege. This is a, a victimology mindset that quickly lends itself to a kind, of, uh, a kind of authoritarianism. You know, do what I say or else you have not fully understood and embraced the privilege that you have. It's essentially claiming that somebody else has caused an offense for which they must make amends. And if they're unwilling to make amends, they're even uh, causing even greater offense. See, so it, it's a it's a cycle. There's no way out of this. 
you either admit and agree and repent for your whiteness or else you are doubling down on the sins of your whiteness. This is a, a, an emotional blackmail system that is put in place specifically to advance progressive ideology, and it's now widespread. This is, this is what you have on college campuses. This is what you have in media. This is what you have now increasingly in a lot of government programs and government hiring. You know, in, 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 confront your white privilege. Now, how about I'm not confronting anything? I confront what I do in life. I'm responsible. I have, I have the, the moral culpability for those actions and decisions that I am responsible for. And that is it. Group or collective responsibility is the elimination of the moral foundation of Western society. And that's why identity politics is toxic. It is toxic waste seeping into the ground. And unless we confront that, it's only going to get worse. Hey, what's going on across the ocean with our uh, European friends? What's the latest with Brexit and all the back and forth over the future of the EU? We've got our special Freedom Hut EU correspondent with us now, better known as the editor-in-chief of Human Events, the global editor-in-chief, in fact, Mr. Rahim Kassam, also general man about town, ascot aficionado, and guest host here of the Buck Saxon Show. Rahim, great to have you. Hey, thanks for having me again, Buck. All right, man, so what's going on? What's going on with Brexit? You're all over the place. Boris Johnson's in the headlines. Theresa May, things are going on. Tell us why we care. It's all going on, and I'll tell you exactly why you care. So the, the European parliamentary elections that happened last week are somewhat of a harbinger for what can be expected, I think, in a, a, a 2020 election cycle in the United States, and I'll, I'll tell you exactly why. Um, last week, we saw a repudiation, once again, in a massive way, of the political center, the elites, the the end of history, Francis Fukuyama types who had decided that neoliberalism, open borders, all of that stuff was just de rigueur, and that's how things were from now on. Well, the Greens on the far left picked up a load of votes from the center-left, and on the hard right in Europe, you had Marine Le Pen and Salvini and the Brexit Party all stealing votes away from the center-right. So you've got this now polarization. Um, in, in European politics. And I think that's exactly what's happening here in the United States as well. When you look at who, uh, you know, whose ideas are, are rising to the surface, it's the hard left, the Sanders and the Ocasio-Cortez. And on the other side, it's, it's Trump. The era of Bill Kristol and Hillary Clinton and all these guys is, for the time being, over. And that's why it's so important. For Britain, for Brexit, well, it was quite an extraordinary scenario, really. Uh, you had Nigel Farage coming out of retirement, setting up a whole new political party. He didn't go back to the UK Independence Party, which is his previous vehicle, set up a whole new party called the Brexit Party. New candidates, new logo, new infrastructure, new everything. And that was just six weeks ago. And he won a major national election just six weeks later. Firstly, absolutely unheard of. Um, in British political history. Secondly, the second time he's won a major national election um, with a new uh, non-mainstream political party. And what that means is that the, the voters out there in the United Kingdom are getting sick to death of Brexit not being delivered. 
cue Theresa May resigning and cue this new um, uh, leadership contest inside the Conservative Party to decide who becomes the next Prime Minister. And for the people out there listening and going, well, why doesn't Nigel just become Prime Minister? We need to have a majority in the House of Commons. And so far, the Brexit Party hasn't got a single seat in the 650-seat House of Commons. Now, just and how, how, how does America for you again. I know, I was going to say, how, how does Boris yeah, Johnson weigh into all this? Well, so exactly. So to bring it back to America for you again, President Trump is going to the United Kingdom on an official state visit next week, and he has in his diary, in his schedule, a, uh, a, a lunch or a dinner or some sort of sit-down meeting with Boris Johnson, the former foreign secretary, now favorite to be the next prime minister. The problem is, Boris, although he pretends to be a conservative, and although he's making nice with the White House and with President Trump now, he is on the record as having called Trump a moron, said that he's uh, unfit to serve as president, says he doesn't go to certain parts of New York because he doesn't want to bump into him, uh, says that he doesn't want to bring him to London because he doesn't, doesn't want to expose Londoners to him. And Boris's own record is pretty poor as well. He's bad on immigration. He believes in amnesty. Um, he's historically bad as the mayor of London. He was a terrible foreign secretary. Uh, he's sort of known as this cute, bumbling buffoon, but actually he's quite a nefarious character in the sense that he actually tricks people into believing that he is a conservative. So we've got six weeks now ahead of us of a conservative uh, party leadership election. And of course, the president meeting with Boris will give Boris the edge in that election. It would almost be like uh, a level of foreign interference in deciding on who the next prime minister should be. And I'll tell you what, if people want Trump to have a really good ally in Britain, as, as the British public want to be to America, then they will implore him not to meet with Boris Johnson, because that can only go awry. And who should be the next prime minister? <laughs> well, I like to think that I should throw my hat in the ring, but... but uh, Raheem, I'd vote for you, and I'd even, I'd even, you know, become one of those fancy minister positions to help you out. Oh, yeah, absolutely. We'd, we'd, we'd create a whole new ministry for you, the, minister, the minister of fun. Um, and but here's, here's the thing. The Conservative Party has put up, so far, there's about 10 candidates fighting in this. And all but one of them, or maybe two of them, these, these two backbenchers, Steve Baker and Esther McVeigh, those are the, probably the two good ones. Very conservative, uh, very free market capitalists, um, very keen on border control, um, very good on Brexit. But they're not cutting through because, as I say, they're just backbenchers. You know how the Democrat Party right now has all of these no-name people running in their presidential race? Unfortunately, that's what's happening to the uh, to the Conservative Party as well. It just so happens that we're losing a lot of talent on the Conservative backbenches, while the continuity candidates, you know, cut from the same mould as David Cameron and Theresa May, are rising up because that's who the media wants to win. So they're giving them all the support. To the casual observer, Brexit, we keep hearing about it. What is this with the implementation? Will they or won't they? Or didn't they vote for this thing? And why isn't it happening? Right. I mean, we voted three years ago to leave the European Union, but then the government set, uh, set upon a path of um, trying to negotiate a leaving deal with the EU, which means because we do trade and because we have a border with Ireland, 
the Northern Ireland border, because of the uh, peace process that took place in '97, um, because of all of that, the, the you know common fisheries policy, because some of our waters bleed into one another. There's all these things that the government has been trying to square the details away on. But of course, the European Union doesn't want to square those details away because they don't want a nation to look like it can successfully leave the EU. They want nations to be uh, supine towards Brussels. So they've thwarted it for three years now. Theresa May was terrible at dealing with it. So she's gone. Nigel Farage of the Brexit Party is saying this. Look, we can leave. We are perfectly within our rights to leave without a deal. We revert to World Trade Organization trading rules and we just go from there. And then if the EU wants to come to the table later and say we want preferential treatment, then we'll have that conversation when it needs to be had. And I think that is what most of the British public are now leaning towards. Let's just go. The man is Raheem Kassam, everybody. He doesn't just have a fancy accent, ladies and gentlemen. He also writes and does TV. Check out his latest over at humanevents.com, where he is global editor-in-chief. Again, humanevents.com for Mr. Raheem Kassam. Raheem, my friend, good to have you. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks so much, Buck. Take care. All right, team. What does it mean now that the other end of the app may be able to rate and review you in a world where we are increasingly defined by our digital reputations. Is this a good thing or a bad thing? I will address that in a moment. I like this new era of digital accountability we find ourselves in, my friends. Let me, let me explain. Currently, there are all these uh, apps out there where you get to rate services that you get and you can go online and you can find out so much about everything from the best plumber to the best vacation spot to you know who gives the best foot massage i mean if one is so inclined but you can find out all kinds of stuff i believe it's called reflexology buck but yeah whatever it's called i love it uh, but you can find out all kinds of stuff online you can also get a sense of ratings of different individuals in a whole lot of ways and uber the ride-sharing app. I like Lyft a lot, too. If either one of them cared to sponsor the show, I'd be, inter I'd be interested in either one of those opportunities. Uh, but, but Uber and Lyft, you know, these ride-share apps, they let you comment on the driver. And, well, now it turns out that they, well, as you know, for a while, they also can rate you as the user. So if you are a very mean person or if you leave garbage in the back of their car what is with the people that put the garbage in the in the door handle, like the used tissue? That is so disgusting. And whenever I reach in the door handle and there's a used tissue in there, I want to punch something, preferably the person who left the used tissue in the door handle, but they're not around. Uh, but they can rate you. And, and now Uber has finally said that that's not just so the driver gets a sense of who he or she may be dealing with. Now they may start to ban people from their services based on bad behavior. I think this is great. I think we should get ratings for all kinds of things. I don't know, you can say, Buck, you're crazy. Maybe I am. It's, it's, it's a brave new world I want us all living in. But I, I want there to be an app where everyone shows up to a movie theater. And if you start talking, people can give you like a demerit. You know, people can give you points off. No talking during movies. And everyone, just by being there, you're geolocated. Up, oh, that person's a movie talker. And then enough people say you're a movie talker, they can keep you out of the movie. Or you can see before you go into the movie, is, this, is there going to be a talker in there? And maybe some movies people only want talkers. I'm just saying, there's all these different applications for this. 
And with Uber now, if you're a jerk and you're mean to the drivers, they can say, sorry, you're not allowed to use our app anymore. They're going to give you warnings and so on and so forth. Open Table, another site that I use all the time because I spend like so many millennials. That's right. I'm a graybeard millennial. Like so many millennials, I spend far too much of my disposable income on food and particularly going out to eat because it's not like I can invest in the housing market, not enough money. So uh, I spend far too much money on food. And, uh, but with Open Table, I, I'm pretty much, I'm like a 99% sure thing when I say I'm going to be at a restaurant and I'm there on time too. I'm very fastidious about it. I, I get there, I arrive. So I feel like that should be, ref- I don't know if, if Open Table does this or not, but that should be represented in my profile so that when I make a reservation at a restaurant, they should know that I'm showing up. And unless I stop showing up, I sh- that should always be the expectation. that This is a guy who shows up, who's on time. I would even say, let him know if I, if I consistently tip 20%, which of course I do. No cheapskate here. I may not be rich, my friends, but I'm rich in spirit. Uh, so I like this. I, I want people to think more about their behavior in this way. I, I want people to have to have greater consideration of their behavior. I mean, I, I think this even, this even applies to just the way we act on the street now because everyone has a cell phone and has video and streaming capability. You know, you're a little less likely to, to throw a fit and be verbally abusive to somebody, at least if you're smart, because you never know. You know, you might decide you're going to start saying something really nasty to somebody. And maybe they even deserve it, but you get live streamed and that all of a sudden goes viral and becomes a big, a big problem for you. Um, I, I want services. I want uh, people that I engage with to mark it down that I'm, I'm a, a good customer who's polite, who's a man. And I know that all of you would feel the same way, right? You, you want credit for this. So I like that Uber's doing this. I'm, I'm hoping this expands to a whole lot of other platforms. The good people should get credit for being good people in the digital world, folks. And the jerks should be treated like jerks. The show ain't over yet, folks. Keeping it real. It's time for Roll Call. Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton for Roll Call. The most fun thing you can do on Facebook, other than posting photos of yourself on vacation. You got to do the, the feet in the photo to show you're there and then some beautiful background, some beach scene, some kind of landscape, you know, the Swiss Alps or whatever. That's how you, you got to do it. Uh, Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton's the place to go and bucksexton.com by the way new and improved if you want to go check out bucksexton.com we are going to start posting all kinds of fun stuff and content there yeah that's right get some articles up got some good things happening all right glad you're first up he writes buck was wondering if there's any chance congress can force Mueller to testify well yes glenn my understanding is that Congress can do a little thing called subpoena, subpoenaing Mueller, and Mueller would be in a very strange position, as far as I can tell, to say no. So I think that that's what's going to happen. I, if the Republicans don't subpoena him, they're missing a big opportunity. And there is, in my opinion, 
No way the Democrats can try to push back against a Mueller subpoena without looking like complete hacks. But that may not stop them, as we know. That may not be on its own enough. Uh, let's see here. Kimmy writes, Yo, Buck, you recently mentioned that you finished Frank Herbert's Dune. Excellent choice. And you are just the audience the author is writing for, i.e. people who don't read sci-fi. Herbert, along with Robert Anson Heinlein, is one of my two favorite authors. Herbert once said something to the effect of, Dune isn't sci-fi, it's socio-political commentary. Check out this interview with him. Stay with the story to the end of the first trilogy at least. Shields high, long live the fighters. Uh, well, thank you so much, Kimmy, for this. I was just told today I haven't finished the first uh, the first of the Dune trilogy books quite yet. I'm about 600 or so pages into the 800 pages. But it, it's the writing is excellent. I mean, the, the guy is an incredible storyteller. And the intricacy of the novel is such that I find myself sometimes going back and rereading parts of it. Um, I, I think that they are remaking the Dune movie. I was just told that today by one of my colleagues at the Hill who is uh, sci-fi... Uh, sci-fi not obsessed what's the word i should sci-fi savvy there we go a little alliteration diane writes hey buck on wednesday's show you wonder why the democrat candidates don't have any real substance given how strongly their political ideology is supported in colleges and i think i know why college kids these days are not only taught what to think uh not how to think so they have no clue how to present arguments to support their ideology much less how to analyze arguments against them. As a result, the Democrats know they don't have to provide any substantive or substantive support for their platform to sustain the support of their followers. Anyway, that's how I see it. Shields high. Keep up the great work. Diane, it's true. College made me a much better conservative because I was always swimming against the current there. I, I had to be able to defend my ideas in the classroom and outside of the classroom, not just against my fellow students, but also against professors. So that meant that I had to be particularly adept in making my case and making my points. I'll never forget taking a class called the American Right in sociology. And as I've described in the past, sociology is the study of why left-wing social theories are correct. That's what sociology is. I would I would even go so far as to say it's not a in the way it is generally taught in schools. It is not a real academic discipline. It's just indoctrination. But I took a sociology class called the American Right, and it was the worst class. It was the worst grade, rather, that I got my entire senior year. It's the only non A that I got senior year. Humble brag, humble brag. Um, oh, I'm just kidding. At Amherst, everybody gets A's. It's ridiculous. But I, I remember uh, being in this classroom and just because I was willing to ask questions of the professor and push back a little bit, there were some other conservatives in the class who would sit near me uh, on purpose because th we formed this little unit and they liked me going toe to toe with the rest of the classroom. And they'd, they'd come up to me afterwards and say, that was great, man. Yeah, you got to keep keep it going. Little did they know one day here I'd be speaking to uh, hundreds of thousands of you across the country. Yeah, yeah. Jackie writes, hey, Buck, love the show. Glad you're back from China. Well, Jackie, that makes two of us. I had enough brown sauce and boiled vegetables for a lifetime. Please tell me why all these expert pundits who are supposedly expert on China, North Korea, law obstruction, presidential everything, 
Tell me why they didn't know all along that Mueller can't charge a president. If it's unconstitutional to charge a president, why haven't all the constitutional experts been telling us that? Every time some new revelation comes to light, all the pundits crow in unison that this, that, or the other thing is something that they're all an expert in. How come none of them have been saying this for the past two years then, huh? Why does Mueller continue to do this, keep dragging it out over and over? How does this stop? So, um, well, Jackie, you're, you're making a very important point here, which is that there are so many people that hold themselves up as experts and it is never challenged, or rather they never stop and think about whether they really qualify as experts in anything. And I think the answer is they don't. Uh, or, or at least they should have to do a whole lot of additional study to be considered an expert in anything because they are not particularly impressive in it. Um, people have been wrong, wrong, and wrong again on Russia collusion and still think of themselves as beyond reproach, still think that they have all the answers and uh, they're unwilling to change that. Josh writes, Natalie Ambrulio was hot back in the day. Also, did you switch producers? Where's producer Mike? Uh, no, I didn't switch. Okay, a few things here, Josh. Uh, Natalie Imbruglia was very talented, and she was the one who sang that song, Torn. That's correct. She also has a song for the ladies out there, Just Leave Me Alone, that some of you ladies might like. Uh, it's very, very catchy. Not as well known as Torn. And I, didn't, I, I, my, I have a new um, uh, technical producer. People also refer to him as a board op, uh, eng- a board op but uh, we have a new technical producer. His name is Mark. Mark, you want to say hi to everybody? Hello, everybody. Yeah, see, that's Mark. Mark's new technical producer. Um, We had a a couple of different technical producers before, um, but we have Mark now in full time. He is the man. He is our technical producer, so you'll hear him bouncing in and out of the show as we go along. Producer Mike is there, but he runs back and forth. I always joke around. I mean, sometimes it's he's getting phone numbers from, you know, ladies in the lobby that are going in and out to get their Starbucks, but it's often that he's pulling video uh, or rather audio and, and, and different components for the show, and he'll leave the studio to do that. So that's why if you hear me say, where's producer Mike? It's not that he's not around. He's just usually working on some on some stuff outside of our actual radio studio. Uh, let's see. And then here we go. Josh says, last Aquaman was good for a DC movie, but that doesn't say much. It was cheesy and a little over the top, but most DC movies are unwatchable. Yeah, Josh, I I can't disagree with you on that. Most DC movies are unwatchable. And the last Aquaman movie was incredibly cheesy. All right. I'm not just going to sit here and keep trashing Aquaman because some of you like it and that's fine. You know, you you could trash Big Trouble in Little China, for example, which I talk about frequently on this show. Uh, I mean, you'd be wrong, but you could do that. You could tell me that Tombstone's not really a Western, even though I think it's the greatest Western of all time. That's right. Fight me. Fight me. Um... Tombstone is it's just a great movie. It's just a really fun to watch, excellent movie. Notice how both Kurt Russell movies. Uh, so, yes, I would, I would put that out there for you. By the way, last night, I couldn't sleep. I don't know why. I, just, I couldn't sleep, really, and I woke up after. And it was one of those things where I woke up after two hours, and all I could think is, please tell me you've been asleep for five or six hours, please. And it was two hours, and I was wide awake. You know, Not like a little bit awake, wide awake for some reason. And I went out to just find something to watch on the on the telly. Oh, it wants to find something to watch on the telly late at night. And I turned on uh, whatever happened to be on it. It was Resident Evil Extinction or Apocalypse or 
I mean, those Resident Evil movies, uh, movies they, they, they still make money, and Mila Jovovich just keeps churning them out. It's all the same. It's just zombies, bah, you know, eating people, and then, and then women running around in very tight tank tops and shorts doing a lot of uh, spin kicks and firing a lot of machine guns. So that's really all you need. You know, I, I just I just want to make a series that's women in short shorts with machine guns and zombies. I'll make uh, producer Mark true or false. I'll make money. I think you'll make money. Thank you. That is the correct answer. Uh, let's see what we have here next up. Uh Oh, I got to find one that's unread. Um, Jerry, right. Can you tell me more about yourself? Well, Jerry, I'm a Capricorn who grew up in New York City and likes to have a good time, but also knows how to kick back, relax, and let the good times roll. Uh, Jerry, I don't know what you want to know, my friend. you got to send me a more specific question than that. Bruce, read the Weed Agency to see how bureaucracy works in government. Hilarious and scary at the same time. Uh, Bruce, there's some great books on bureaucracy, and uh, but I will tell you this. There is nothing that really teaches you about bureaucracy like working for the federal bureaucracy, which I have done. And it, it is a it is an experience, my friends. That I can tell you. Mike up in Alberta, Canada writes, I stumbled on a quote from a noted Democrat. Apologies if you're aware of it already. On April 27th, 1961, at a speech in New York City, John F. Kennedy said, quote, we are opposed around the world by a monolithic and ruthless conspiracy that relies primarily on covert means for expanding its sphere of influence, on infiltration instead of invasion, on subversion instead of elections, on intimidation instead of free choice, on guerrillas by night instead of armies by day. It is a system in which has conscripted vast human and material resources into building a tightly knit, highly efficient machine that combines military, diplomatic, intelligence, economic, scientific, and political operations uh, just want to share this with you okay mike thank you i've never seen that quote before i don't know i can't attribute it to anything because i don't know but you say it's kennedy thank you so much for sending it saying that's going to be it for the show for today it has been excellent may we bien sûr i hope you agree um please do download the podcast subscribe on itunes to the buck sexton show tell a friend to subscribe be like this is the best podcast ever i will talk to you tomorrow shields high